1 Corinthians 15, and the whole chapter, but particularly the verses that we'll be looking at today, is really one of the big watershed moments in Scripture. Um, Some of you know, if you've worked on small engines at all, that you have a piece in this called the flywheel key. Um, I recently had to work on this when I was uh, working on a pressure washer that we have. And the flywheel key is a very tiny piece of metal um, that holds the, uh, the flywheel and the crankshaft together so that they go in uh, sync with each other. It's lined up in the proper place, and they spin together. And this one tiny little piece, if you don't have it in there, the whole thing isn't going to work. You're not going to be able to mow your lawn or, or use a pressure washer or whatever the, the tool is. You remove this one piece, as small and insignificant as it appears to be, and nothing works like it's supposed to. And we have something very similar to this flywheel key in Christianity. In fact, we could probably say that there are a lot of things like this in Christianity. But there is something in Christianity that is so central to every tenet of Christianity that if we removed this one piece, if we removed this one thing, the whole thing would be a waste of time. In fact, Paul will go on to say later in 1 Corinthians 15 that if we do remove this one piece, then let's just eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, why are we here today on Sunday morning? Why do we believe that Christianity impacts us not just on Sunday morning, but 24-7? Why is it that we ought to live Christian lives? And all of this, every argument that we can give for Christianity, it all hinges on this one point, this one tenet. And that thing, of course, as you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, is the doctrine of the resurrection. It is like that flywheel key. It holds everything together. It is, we might say, a watershed moment. If there is no resurrection, then there is no hope, there is no faith, there is no eternal life, and there is no anything of any value in this world. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is dealing with a group of people at the Corinthian church who deny the resurrection. They say that it does not exist. And so we are going to start in verse 12 and read together through verse 19. Paul writes and says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
We're going to look at the text today in three sections. Um, and these three sections uh, is going to be the certainty of the resurrection, the certainty of faith, and the certainty of hope. I'm actually giving to you, I decided to write this outline kind of in the inverse of the way that it appears in the text, because in the text he's saying, we have no faith if Christ did not raise, but we're giving the inverse of that. Because Christ is raised, we do have a certainty of faith and a certainty of hope. Let's jump right into the first section here. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 12 sets the tone for the entire paragraph. Let's read this verse again. He says, If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, what we learn here in verse 12 is that there, were a, uh, there was a group of people at the church in Corinth. I say a group because he uses the word some, it's not all, but some of the Corinthian Christians were going around and they were making the claim that there is no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. We do not rise from the dead. You may put the question this way, and this is the title of the message today, and that is this, do dead men rise? And some Corinthians said no. Now, there's been a lot of speculation on what these Corinthians, what what influenced them to believe this. And I say speculation because it is only that, speculation. We don't know exactly why this was popular with a particular group in the church at Corinth. Uh, Perhaps some have suggested that they were influenced by a form of Greek dualism where it said that the things that are spiritual are good and things that are physical are bad. And so there's no way there could be a resurrection because who would want this thing resurrected because it's physical and it's bad. Perhaps some have suggested that this group in Corinth had a background influenced by the Sadducees. And you might recall from the Gospels that Jesus had an interaction, interaction with the Sadducees where the Sadducees said there is no resurrection, there is no afterlife, and Jesus refuted that position. It is possible that uh, that group had influenced these people in Corinth. Perhaps they were influenced by Epicurean philosophy, and of course there are other views and other uh, suggestions. We don't know why they believed this, but the fact remains that some of them did believe this in the church at Corinth. And there are numerous ways that Paul could have chosen to address this error in their thinking. But he chooses to go uh, to expose a massive logical inconsistency in their thinking. And actually, this passage is a brilliant passage of logic and rhetoric where Paul goes very logical on this group of people, and he exposes this in a masterful way. In fact, I'm going to suggest to us that Paul's strategy here is based in Proverbs 26, as we'll see in a minute, and that we ought to implement this strategy for our own apologetics as we engage people who may uh, believe in different things, um, that we can do the same thing that Paul is doing here. Here's the basic logic of verse 12. In verse 12, the logic is this. The Corinthians say, dead men don't rise. And Paul says, but you believe Jesus rose. (laughs) Therefore, you kind of believe dead men rise. (laughs) have, Have you guys spent like 30 seconds thinking through your worldview here? Have you spent any amount of time thinking about this in any meaningful way? And so he refutes them based on an inconsistency 
in their logic. It is important to note that Paul is referring to a physical bodily resurrection. I mean, what other kind of resurrection could there be? Uh, Resurrection means that something that was dead is made alive again. And so this means that we will experience more than just a spiritual resurrection. We're not going to be invisible spirits floating around in this space. The resurrection is a resurrection of our bodies. Now, granted, and Paul will go on to make this clear later on in 1 Corinthians 15, as we'll see in a few weeks, Lord willing, granted, the body will be immortal as opposed to mortal, um, but it will be your body. Some people think, boy, I can't wait to get to heaven and get rid of this body. Well, I have news for you. You're stuck with it. (laughs) Why? Because of the resurrection. Again, it's going to be equipped and adequate for living an eternal life. There are going to be differences, but it's going to be you. It's not going to be something uh, completely and entirely different. It's going to be your body, resurrected, made new, equipped to live in eternity for uh, forever. Your body will be remade so that it is imperishable and immortal, but it will be yours nonetheless. Now, Paul's point is that the resurrection of our bodies is true because Christ's resurrection is true. And just to say it another way, Paul, and sometimes it's helpful, by the way, uh, to say the same thing multiple times, but in different ways, okay, um, to help people. If, if you don't understand it this way, maybe you'll understand it this way. And if you don't get it this way, maybe you'll get it that way. And that's exactly what Paul does in verse 13. He says the same thing, but just a different way. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You see how he kind of gives the inverse uh, statement there? In verse 12, he says, um, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection? You believe Christ is raised, so you must believe in resurrection. And then he says, okay, but if you don't believe in resurrection, then you can't believe Christ was raised. Same thing, but just said through uh, a different lens or a different way. One commentator notes and says to deny a bodily resurrection in principle was to deny the resurrection of Christ. If you claim that dead people don't rise, as this group was doing, then not even Christ rose from the dead. If you claim that believers only experience a resurrection of the soul but not of the body, then you are stuck claiming that Jesus did not raise in his body but only in his soul. There's parallels here that we have. As you remember, of course, Jesus told Thomas to stick his fingers in the nail holes. Jesus did rise. We believe that Jesus rose bodily in his body, that his resurrection was more than just a spiritual resurrection, as some have claimed that Jesus was some sort of a phantom or some sort of a ghost. But Jesus, again, debunked that by telling Thomas to put his hands in the nail holes uh, and of course, you may recall in First John, that first section of First John, where John argues for a bodily resurrection because he says, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, <laughs> there's actually something physical about Christ's resurrection here. Um, that is the nature of the resurrection of Christ. And therefore, Paul argues that because this is what happened to Christ, then in like manner this will happen to us. And so the resurrection is something that is certain. 
But that is not the only thing here. We have a certainty of faith. And again, this is a brilliant work of logic here uh, that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write. It is a masterpiece, I would suggest to us, uh, because what Paul is going to do uh, for the rest of this section is he is going to take the belief of his opponents and he is going to drive them to the logical conclusion of that belief. And this is what I was saying earlier is something that we ought to... to um, to implement as we are engaging other people in conversation. And that is because sometimes, as human beings, we have a tendency not to think through all of the implications of our beliefs. We will quickly maybe grab onto a belief about something, and then we fail to realize that, wait a second, if I believe that, I kind of have to believe that too, or else I mean really inconsistent. And so then it becomes, do you believe this, or do you believe this? And that's what Paul does. He says, okay, let's get in the car, Corinthian Christians, and let's say, if you believe this, we're going to drive all the way down to the outcome of this belief. What does it result in, we might say? This rhetorical strategy that Paul uses is something that we can uh, find all the way back in Proverbs 26. And the strategy is, again, simply taking your opponent's belief to their logical conclusion. We have a tendency not to do this. We are oftentimes inconsistent in our beliefs. In fact, if we were to spend enough time with each one of you individually and start to say, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this, we could probably say at some point, uh, you can't believe both that and that. You can't believe both that and that because we have a tendency to be inconsistent sometimes. And that's part of what Christianity is, is bringing consistency to our beliefs and our behavior as well. But this is what's going on with these Corinthian Christians. They denied the resurrection, but they failed to think of what the outcome of that would be. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Christians, then what is the outcome of that? I'm going to give you an example of this. Uh, this uh, we're completely and totally switching gears right now, okay? Same principle, but I'm going to give you a different example. I'm going to give you an example of where it would be helpful to, to help somebody take their belief system to its logical conclusion. And then we'll come back and apply it to the resurrection. Uh, Richard Weikart, uh, the author of the book From Darwin to Hitler, writes this. He says, until the second half of the 19th century... Almost all Christian churches and most anti-clerical European liberals upheld the idea of the sanctity of human life. This was a universal belief. Only in the late 19th and especially the early 20th century did significant debate erupt over issues relating to the sanctity of human life, especially infanticide, euthanasia, abortion, and suicide. Darwinism played an important role in this debate for it altered many people's conceptions of the importance and value of human life. Now, I'm not saying that Darwinism is the only influence. Uh, There are other factors at play going on here. But what I am saying is that what Richard Weikart is doing here is he is helping us to see what the conclusion of this worldview is. If you are going to make the conclusion, if you are going to believe the premise that human beings are nothing more than reorganized pond scum, or that we are nothing more than stardust, 
or that we are only biological creatures and everything that has caused us to come to this point is only an advanced form of a chemical reaction of putting baking soda and vinegar together, and here we are now, then there is ultimately no value to human life. Murder is not wrong in that worldview. Suicide is not wrong in that worldview. Abuse is not wrong in that worldview. Torturing people is not wrong in that worldview. Neglecting to love other people is not wrong in that worldview. If we are ultimately pond scum, then anything goes. And this is what the author of this book is helping us to do. He's simply helping us to take a belief system to its final destination, to its conclusion. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Different case study, same principle of logic and rhetoric. Okay, we're going to take the resurrection. Let's take that to its logical uh, conclusion. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, are you prepared to accept the outcome of your presuppositions? You can't have your cake and eat it too. If, in the Darwinism example, you are going to deny that we are made uniquely in the image of God, then you need to be prepared to accept the consequences, namely that your life has no value. And that's what Paul is doing. Paul is saying, essentially, if you are going to reject the doctrine of the resurrection, then you are going to have to be prepared to accept the consequences or the outcome of that belief. And we see this strategy in Proverbs 26 in verse 5. We read, According or answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. That's exactly what we did just a moment ago in the example of Darwinism. That is exactly what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In both examples, they are using uh, this particular verse to expose something. And what this verse instructs us to do is to answer a fool according to his folly. In other words, you say, okay, you want to believe that? All right, let's see what happens when you believe that. We're going to answer you according to your own standard. According to your standard, according to your declaration, according to your worldview, according to your presuppositions, according to your claims, then this is not my, my standard. Paul is not saying the resurrection doesn't exist. He's arguing the opposite. He's just saying, according to what you're saying, this is the outcome. For Paul, the Corinthian Christians needed to be reminded that there are a lot of consequences uh, of having no resurrection. And he begins here by saying that their faith is useless and preaching is useless. He says in verses 14 through 15, if, we have an if-then, okay? If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Okay, you see the strategy here? Again, Paul is not saying faith is in vain and preaching is in vain. He's saying if you're right about this, then it is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Now, there are three things so far to note here. 
three things that he is taking or observing that are logical conclusions. And I'm going to put this up here on a, a way, hopefully this will help to, to represent the text a little bit so that we can see what's going on. Paul is building an argument. He's building a case. Um, and each of these arrows represents the kind of the result or the outcome. And so, number one, the one at the top here, the Corinthian Christians, or some of them, are making the argument that dead men don't rise. And Paul says, okay, let's start with your premise. Okay? Dead men don't rise. Paul doesn't believe this, but he's saying, let's start with it. And then he says, okay, what is the outcome of that? If this is a universal principle that dead men don't rise, then what do we know? Jesus did not rise. And if Jesus did not rise, there's more. Preaching is vain. Why are you, why are you here? Faith is vain. What? Jesus did not rise from the dead, so there's trusting in him isn't going to do anything because he's in the grave. And then finally, we lied about God. He says, we've, we've been found misrepresenting God. In other words, everything hinges on the resurrection, according to Paul. If Christ was not raised, then the gospel is a sham. And you guys should be out on the lake right now, or in the woods, or I don't know. Because it's all a sham, if the resurrection is not true. Then what Paul does here as he's building this, and we're going to build onto this um, little uh, chart here of sorts. Um, but before that, he repeats his main assertion, and he says, he's already said this once, but he's going to say it again. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, in verse 16. Okay? Do, you guys, do you guys understand this? Do you understand the implications of this? He repeats this for emphasis and then says this in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So he's building on to this and he specifically adds one thing. And I'm, I'm putting this as an implication of your faith being in vain. But he says, if Christ has not been raised, you're still lost in your sins. I mean, the whole purpose of Christ's coming as the promised Messiah was to offer forgiveness for sins, something that the law could not do. Even the sacrificial system was not ultimately forgiving sins. It was pointing to Christ's forgiveness of sins. It was a picture of that. Um, but what Paul says is that if, Christ, if dead men don't rise, then Jesus did not rise. If Jesus did not rise, then your faith is in vain. And if your faith is in vain, then you're lost in your sins. You remain as a sinner without any atonement for your guilt. That is the ultimate consequence for us. And if you are lost in your sins, then you have no hope. And I'm giving us the inverse of that, and that is we have a certainty of hope in 18 through 19. Here's what we read in those two verses. Paul writes and says, If those, or then those, also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's really building out this chart a lot here because he's saying there's more going on than just this. Okay, so let's see what he says now according to verse, verses 18 and 19. If dead men don't rise, then that means Jesus did not rise. If Jesus did not rise, then that means that preaching is in vain, faith is in vain, and the consequence of that is your loss and your sins. It also means that they lied about God, the apostles did. It also means that believers perish, so all your dead friends and relatives have perished. And it also means that we ultimately have no hope. Uh, That's where he says, if we have hope in this life only, we are most to be pitied. People should look at us with compassion. That poor, poor Christian. How ignorant is he? Because he is trusting in a Christ that cannot save. And wow, look at his miserable life that he has here on this earth. That's that's a, a bad deal that he got. The question then is whether or not we ultimately have hope. And you can trace this line of reasoning down that all of these things hinge on the resurrection of Christ. We have no hope if Jesus did not rise. We have uh, uh, a vain faith, a vain preaching. We will perish. The Bible is a fabrication. It's a lie. If Jesus did not rise, if this is true, then all of this is a sham. There is no hope with no resurrection. In verse 18, we note that believers who have already died have perished if there is no resurrection. There are only two options. Either you're resurrected bodily or you perish. If there is no bodily resurrection, then you perish. Don't offer any hope at a funeral anymore. Don't offer any hope to a person who's dying anymore. Don't offer any hope to a person who has a debilitating disease anymore. This life is your best life now. This is the best that it gets. And if you, if you got dealt, you know, a, a, a bad situation, and tough luck, because this is the best that it gets for you. You need to, without the resurrection, jettison all hope. In fact, so miserable are we, as believers, if we have bought into this fabrication of a resurrection, that others ought to take pity on us. And again, let's read verse 19 again. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people. Of all people! If you could choose any group of people in the whole world to take pity on, it's us. We are the most deceived out of anyone. One commentator writes about this and says, If this world is all there is, the believer is a martyr to an illusion. That's the best that we have going for us. Meaning that apart from the resurrection, our lives are much ado about nothing. It's all that we have here. This verse is a testimony that if the world is the best thing that we have, then we are miserable people. Now, let me say something here and interject this with uh, something. I hope that you are seeking to cultivate a good life. 
I hope Christians in this world are seeking to cultivate a good life. I hope that Christians are marrying and having children and having families and starting businesses, developing cures for cancer and running for political office, planting gardens, fighting for justice, and doing all of those good things that we ought to do. I hope that you're not just sitting on your lazy boy and just watching the world pass you. And being a Christian impacts all of those things. In other words, you ought to be a different kind of business owner because you're a Christian. You ought to be a different kind of a husband or a different kind of a wife because you are a Christian. However, the fact remains, as is being taught in this passage, that if your Christianity only extends to the benefits of this life, if your Christianity only benefits you in this life, and that is all, then you ought to be pitied because you have gone into a lie. What this means then is that the joy of this world is limited. I didn't say you couldn't have joy in this world. You can, and I... I want every person to pursue that. I want you to be joyful, and I want you to be excited about what the Lord is doing, and I want you to be happy. However, it is limited in this world, which is why we have hope in the next world. There will be more joy in that world than there is in this world, because we will be in the very presence of Christ himself. Paul says this same principle in a different way. We're not going to get to this verse today, but later on in 1 Corinthians 15, we will see that Paul says this, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If you remove that flywheel key, if you remove this one piece that everything depends on, then just go be hedonists. Go go live for pleasure, and you might not be here tomorrow, so just go party it up. Live, live life however you want to live, because there is ultimately no hope. If there is no resurrection, then you might as well go rogue, because it doesn't matter. You may as well just live for the moment, because the resurrection is key to everything. Where do we go from here? The real hope that we can find from this text is when we read everything backwards. Or, maybe better said, the inverse of everything. Because Paul doesn't really believe this case. He's just giving it as a hypothetical scenario. This passage could be either a very depressing passage, or it could be a very encouraging passage. And I believe it's the latter. I'm going to put this chart up again that I did earlier, but I'm going to put it up as the inverse of everything. Dead men do rise. Jesus did rise. Preaching is effective. Faith is profitable, and therefore you're forgiven of sin. God's word is true. Believers live, those who have died already, and we have hope. This is... Not, by the way, a hope of, I'm crossing my fingers, and I'm hoping that it's all going to work out. This is a certainty. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we have a certainty 
of hope. One commentator expresses it this way and says, Looking back at the previous verses, we can reconstruct a positive version of Paul's soteriology out of his negative statements. Christians are not in a pitiable situation, but a desirable and enviable one. They are not lost, but saved. They are not in their sins, but forgiven and justified. Finally, they do not merely have hope for this life, but look forward to the eternal glory that will accompany their resurrection from the dead. What this means, then, is that because of the resurrection of Christ, your hope and your faith are certain, they are stable, they are enduring, and they are guaranteed to work in full. The hope of Christ and the hope of the gospel surpasses the limits of any human derived hope. The truth is that Jesus rose from the dead. Christians will rise from the dead. Death is not final. Preaching is effectual. Faith is profitable. The Bible is true. Believers will not perish. You are forgiven of sin and given Christ's righteousness, and we have eternal and everlasting hope because of the resurrection. The problem then is not that the resurrection is non-existent or ineffectual. It's neither of those things. The resurrection is true and effectual. The problem then is that people fail to look to the resurrection. Or, in other words, they fail to repent and believe on Christ and trust in him for their salvation and for their hope. The solution then is to embrace the gospel, to believe the gospel, to repent and trust on Christ alone, and that is what our world needs, and that is what Orville needs, that is what Wayne County needs, is repentance and belief on Christ because of the certainty of the resurrection. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, all of these things are true, and you have hope. I have five points of application today. And man, it looks like uh, we're ending a little bit on the early side today. Probably won't complain too much <laughs> about that. Um, but I have five points of application. Um, number one is this. Believe in the resurrection of Christ. I think they're all run-on sentences, by the way, but that's okay. Believe in the resurrection of Christ as the centerpiece of your hope for a future resurrection. Okay. Um, that's, that's number one, okay? If this passage calls us to do anything, it's calling us, believe in the resurrection. It's foolish not to, okay? It is folly to reject it. So that's the first one that we're called to do, is believe in that. Number two is this. When others doubt the truthfulness of Scripture, help them to see the logical conclusion of their presuppositions or their beliefs or their worldview or whatever. We saw this earlier when we looked at Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, answer a fool according to his folly. We saw this because this is the structure in which today's passage is, is given to us, where, where Paul says, I'm going to show you the outcome of this. We saw this with our other example of Darwinism. If you embrace this, then there are conclusions that you have to embrace as well. So, uh, and we can have a million applications of this principle, and we could talk about this, by the way, throughout the week if, if you have questions about this, but one of the ways in which we can engage unbelievers is to help them to see the outcome of their beliefs in a kind, gracious way, of course.
The next application is this. Comfort yourself with the truth that those who have already died in the faith have not perished but will rise again. Uh, Some of us in this room could testify. In fact, I think probably all of us could testify that we have loved ones that we have lost. And we could confess, I think, that reflecting upon those uh, th- those realities can be a roller coaster ride uh, at times, and probably there are some of us, maybe even all of us, that would confess as well that sometimes we wonder, is this even real? <laughs> are they? E- do they even have a hope right now? And this text can be a comfort to those who have had loved ones die before you in knowing that those who have died in the faith have not perished, but will rise again. Next point of application is this. Trust that one day God will set right all injustices and that eternal life will be far superior to this life. I'm specifically thinking of the phrase um, that we are of all men most to be pitied for this application. Uh, We're not to be pitied. Because we actually are in an enviable position. And we trust and we know that God will set every wrong right. And that even if life here is difficult, which it is for everyone in some form or fashion, it will be glorious in the next life. And then the final application is to repent of your sins and the trust in Christ, so that the benefits of Christ's resurrection will be applied to you. If you have not repented and believed on Christ, then today the call is for you to repent and believe on Christ. And in line with the passage today, all of the benefits of the resurrection are applied to you, specifically the fact that you will rise again because Christ rose again. And that is the hope that we have. It is a sure hope. It is a guaranteed hope. It is because of Christ. It is because of the gospel. It is because of the power of God. We can rest in that. It is stable. It is enduring. Thank you, God, for your grace to us in the resurrection. Thank you that we can trust that uh, we will, as believers, be resurrected again all those who have repented and believed on Christ. We pray that you might encourage us today, that you'd help us. Our faith would be uh, fortified today because of the truth of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.